we are going to be diving back into the book of Genesis together. There's an awesome new graphic up there on the screen uh, where we'll be looking at the life of Joseph, of this theme of resting in hope. And, and this morning, uh, jumping back into Genesis, it's kind of like for me uh, taking my family to a place that I went to as a kid, uh, going back to a book that I love in the Bible. I was able to take my family to Uari camping a couple weeks ago. And I love Uari. I love camping and hiking and fishing and being around a campfire and all of that. And uh, there's some, some pictures of uh, me and my family, like my, me and my dad riding horses in the, in the quote-unquote mountains there. Some of you come from places with real mountains, but this is North Carolina, kind of foothills-type mountains, right? These are small, um, but riding horseback, going hiking with me and my, uh, my wife and my kids. It was a great time. But if you've ever taken your family somewhere that you loved as a kid, or hiking, uh, or camping uh, with your whole family, you may realize things weren't exactly the way that you remember them once you actually get there. Uh, you may uh, be around a campfire and then make it back into the camper at the end of the night and realize, man, I smell terrible. Like, riding horses all day with your dad, man, you smell awful at the end of all of life. Like, what do I do with myself? Like, I need to go take a shower. And going back into the book of Genesis is a little bit like that. It's a place we love. It's a place with great stories. We've, we've got fond memories of the book of Genesis. But as we walked through Genesis, have we not seen, man, it's a little bit dirtier than I remember. It's a little bit messier than I remember. Yeah, there's everything that's there. It's still good and right. But man, it's, it's a little crazy. Like some of these episodes in Genesis, if you thought Jerry Springer was wild, I mean, the Bible is wild, y'all. Like, if you thought that Braveheart was kind of messy and there were some, like, really scary parts and sad parts and brave parts in there, like, this outdoes Braveheart. Like, Genesis has got it all when it comes to stories. But all the whole of Genesis is to point us to ultimately the person and work of Jesus. We believe that the story of Jesus is what the whole Bible is ultimately pointing us towards. So uh, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible and meet me in Genesis chapter 36 this morning. If you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on the way in, I'm really glad that you did. If you don't own a Bible, consider that Bible our gift to you this morning. Uh, we love the Bible here, and we want you to see Jesus in and through these scriptures. This morning, as we walk through this text together, we're going to see three big things. The first is the real blessing, the exalted son, and the true king. Let's see first in Genesis 36 what God has to say for us about what real blessing is. Genesis 36 starts like this with a big list of names. Here we go, church. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, and uh, the Hittite, and Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboath. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basemath bore Reuel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all the property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went to a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau 
is Edom. Let's stop there for now. Now, to kind of catch us up in the the story of Genesis so far, we've been tracing the promises of God and the grace of God to show himself and reveal himself to a people. God created everything in the beginning of Genesis. He made it good and right, but humans, they rejected God's goodness, said, I wanted to find goodness for myself, and brought sin into God's good world, therefore breaking it. And what we've seen on every single page is that sin continues to flourish. Sin continues to be present, but God does not give up on his people. And in in, 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 in Genesis chapter 12, we see that God selects a family. Uh, Abram is his name. And he calls him to go into a land that he's going to give him. He's going to bless him. And he's going to, that through that blessing, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him. We trace that family all the way to Jacob here. Jacob has a brother, Esau, and from their very beginning, they're wrestling together in the womb with one another. But God's blessing eventually lands on Jacob. Jacob, the younger son, the one who was rejected, if you will, by his father, and Jacob is the son of blessing. And now we get to this chapter 36, where reconciliation has happened with Esau and Jacob. They've buried their father in his good old age. They've come back together, but now the land, it says, is, is, is not enough for the both of them to dwell there. And in the, the rest of chapter 36 is just detailing these clans, the sons of Esau, uh, the, the chiefs that he set over them, the kings that are in that land that are connected to Esau. It's detailing all of his possessions, all of his wealth, all of his might and power. He's kind of, uh, kind of uh, etched up as some sort of like overlord over all of these people with all kinds of power. And I think we're meant to ask the question, like, why is this here? Why are we told all these details about Esau? Why is an entire chapter of Genesis kind of connected to the success, if you will, of Esau and not Jacob, if if Jacob is the son of the blessing? I think we're given a hint at the end of this, uh, at the the beginning of chapter 37. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 37. This closes this, all these names uh, connected to Esau. And it said of, of Jacob, just these things. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Now you may have noticed at the beginning of chapter 36, there was a phrase that's popped up time and time again in the story of Genesis. This phrase of, these are the generations of. That is like a bookend there that starts this section, and then another book, and at the end of the section, look at the uh, 37 verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob, starting the next section of Genesis. We're meant to pause and ask, why is this all here? Why are all these details here about Esau? Is real blessing power, wealth, and greatness, like Esau is painted as having? It cannot be. Jacob has been chosen by God. He's promised the real blessing, and it's to him and not Esau that real blessing is going to come. Now, maybe, let's connect this to our lives for just a second. Maybe you've been in a position like this before. You have looked out at others, and you think, man, I've been trying to keep my stuff together. I've been trying to work really hard. I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm trying to do what I can, and it doesn't seem like I can succeed. It seems like the Esau's of the world are succeeding. 
The ones without the blessing of God, the arrogant ones, the prideful ones, maybe you can commiserate with these words that the psalmist writes in Psalm 73. He writes these words, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pains until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are, and are not stricken like the rest of mankind. See, the psalmist continues to detail their, their, their pride and violence, indulgence and oppression, yet they continue to look like the ones that are getting ahead. They have everything they want. What is God trying to tell us through this? If this really is God's word for us, why are all these details here about Esau? See, many of us have had these moments of feeling envious against others. While they prosper, we struggle to make ends meet. We may feel like, man, why does their marriage look so easy? Why, why can they have kids so easily? Why didn't I get that job? Why are they succeeding? Why are they getting ahead? It's in these moments we are called to remember that real blessing is not found in worldly powers, excess, and status. Real blessing is found in God himself. On every single page of Genesis thus far, when God shows up, when God connects himself to the people in these stories, this is where real blessing is found. It's, it's in knowing God. It's knowing and receiving the love of God and being content with having just him, nothing but him. That's why the psalm, psalmist would end 73 like this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. The psalmist is recognizing his blessedness is in the presence of God. And that's why he ends the psalm like this. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but the God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, we live in a culture that wants to sell us the lie that success, power, excess, and abundance is what real blessing is. And if you don't have it, you must not be blessed. But the God of the Bible tells us something different. He gives us good news, not just a prescription. He gives us good news. Real blessing can only come from God himself and only in his time. See, God has made promises to Jacob that he is going to make good on. If he says that promise, he is going to make good on it. And we, like Jacob, are called to wait in patient trust on God's promises. Maybe you're coming in here this morning, and man, you, in your struggle with sin, just feel like, man, I, I don't know why this pattern it continues in my life. I don't know why I can't overcome this. You need to hear that God not only has done something about your sin, but he's coming back. He's going to make you new. He is going to renew you by the, and sanctify you by the power of his Holy Spirit. He is active and at work in you. If you're waiting for healing, like there's something wrong with your body, you feel broken, there's something wrong with you, you've been, you've been given a diagnosis of something bad going on in you, you need to hear the hope of what only the gospel could bring. That one day, all of our pain, all of our suffering, all of our healing will be ultimately realized. Some of it in this life. Like God might actually grant those prayers for healing. He might actually do it. But even if he doesn't, we can count on a new body in the new heavens and the new earth. We can 
take it to the bank that our suffering in this present life will not define us forever. God is going to bring ultimate healing. Maybe it's reconciliation. Maybe you're hoping for that type of unity with another person that just isn't working out right now. It could be in your marriage. It could be someone in your family. It could be someone that you're estranged from right now. No, God has already done something about it. Mysteriously, there is this reunification and reconciliation that we've already been worked in us by the person and work of Jesus with everyone, and one day we will ultimately realize it at the day of Christ. See, real blessing is a life of receiving the love of God and content with having nothing but him. We're called to walk and see this example of Jacob being painted as having nothing here. He's only to cling to God here. But this passage isn't just here to just do that. This passage is to also give us a reminder that when we do get what we want, when we do get blessing and love and and receive what we want from God, we can often distort those things and begin to worship our gifts and worship our status more than we worship the God who's given it to us. Let's continue this story and see the beginning part of the story of Joseph in Genesis 37, verse 2. We'll read verse 2 all the way through verse 11. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing a flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to him, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dream and for his words. And he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Isn't that a fun story about family unity there? Doesn't that just give us hope for all the unity we can experience with our families? No, no, no. So there's, there's a lot going on in this passage here. But we need to recognize this. This is the introduction that we are given to Joseph. Now, if you know anything about the story of Joseph, God is going to do incredible things with Joseph. The story of Joseph is going to actually take us through the end of the book of Genesis, of chronicling his journey and the way that God actually ultimately uses him to save the entire nation of Israel, all of his brothers and his father. But the first thing we learn about Joseph is he is a whiny little tattletale. And who likes a tattletale? Nobody. Kids in the room, nobody likes a tattletale. Adults in the room, nobody likes a tattletale, right? 
See, the first thing we're told is that he's hated by his brothers. He's favored by his father. He's gifted with these dreams from God. And whatever this bad report that he gave to his father, uh, whatever it was, all it did was add fuel to the fire of their hatred for him. We're actually told three different times (laughs) that he is hated by his brothers. It's like hate, hate, triple hate, double hate like loathe entirely. This guy is absolutely loathed by his brothers. Here he comes. Again, we hate this guy. See, one of the primary reasons that his brothers hated him so much is because of the blatant favoritism that Joseph is showing of, uh, uh, that Jacob is showing of Joseph. Jacob is overt in his preference for Joseph. And and remember that that Joseph is the only son, not just the, uh, the, the, the child of his old age. He's the only son of Rachel only son of Rachel, born to her. And so he's really, really, really happy that he's there and he preferences him. And not only that, you know, Joseph, uh, Jacob loves him so much, he makes a special robe and clothes him with it so he can go prance around before his brothers. Because the robe has this like double meaning, it was showing his preference um, of him, but then also it speaks for Jacob even when Jacob's not there. Like it's his like superhero costume that he's kind of flash around with his cape saying, look at me, look at me all the time. It only doubles the arrogance and pride that this young, snot-nosed 17-year-old kid already needs no help doing. If you've met a 17-year-old here, okay, I love some of you that are 17 year, years old here. I was a 17-year-old here. Every 17-year-old needs lessons in humility. All of them, right? I needed them, you need them, whether you need them currently or in the future or in the past, you need them. So this, a lot of people ask the question of like, well, what is this robe really? What did it look like? We're given descriptions. One says that it's a multicolored robe. One says it's just a long sleeve robe. That's a helpful footnote in the ESV, right? Whatever a long sleeve robe meant, who knows? It doesn't matter what the robe looked like. It matters what it signified. It signified that he was Jacob's favorite. And even when Jacob wasn't there, this was to show that he was to be preferred. This compounded the hatred from his brothers. Not only is he entitled, snot no 17-year-old, who knows his daddy loves him more, but he needs lessons in humility. See, we need to pause here for a moment as many parents in the room and ask ourselves some questions here. See, this overt preference of one child of another, I think all of us can get on the same page and say, that's not good. Like, we shouldn't do that. If you have many children, you shouldn't just set your affections on one of them and treat the rest of them like dirt. Probably shouldn't do that. That seems to be what's happening in this story here. But we need to also see that this is a generational problem for this family. It's happened time and time again. But Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael He prefers Isaac. He's the one that gets the promise. Then Isaac with Jacob and Esau, Jacob gets the promise. There's a preference going on with Esau there. Now Jacob does this with Joseph. So what should our love for our children produce in them? What should our love for all of our children produce in them? It should produce a love for others. There's a quote from uh, someone that I was listening to a podcast this week about this passage. Her name is Kristen Poole. She's a, a women's ministry leader in another church. And she says, the absence of a firm grasp of one's belovedness leads to all sorts of sin. 
I'll read that again. The absence of a firm grasp of one's belovedness leads to all sorts of sin. So we need to ask ourselves, is, is the way that we are showing our love and preferential love, because we all have a special love for our kids, right? Or is the way that we're showing that love producing a love for others in those children? Is it helping them love their brothers and their sisters? Even beyond that, their classmates, their, their classmates in Veritas Kids this morning. Is the way in which we're loving them producing a humility or... Is it producing an arrogance? Is it producing a pride? We should not feed into those things. We should learn from the mistakes of Jacob here. Now, herein lies some tension as well. Because we as followers of Jesus, we believe that God has saved us. He has chosen us and not others. And there's a tension there, a real tension. But the fact that God has saved us should never make us smug or arrogant. What should that love do in us? What is the greatest commandment? Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, our love that God shows for us should produce a love and a humility in us. Church, we are in fact saved by grace alone, not by anything that we have done. And that should humble us and produce a love for others in us. It should soften our hearts for others and welcome them into seeing the God, that, the, the, the God that loves us also loves them. See, that's not what happens in this story. And then what happens is even worse, these dreams come after the fact. Let's zoom in on these dreams. These dreams come along, and uh, what they do is they don't clear up everything for everyone, right? No, they just continue to, to, to make uh, these brothers hate Joseph even more. If they didn't before, they definitely do now. You can imagine the, the entitled baby brother kind of walking up to his older brothers, some of them who probably had kids of their own, you know, and he's got his fancy coat on and he's like flailing his long sleeves around, right? And he walks up as the 17-year-old and says, you know what? I had a dream and I'm going to tell you about it. You really need to know about this one, right? We're all in this field, right? We all got these sheaves of grain and you'll never believe what happened, all of the other sheaves of grain, you know what they did? They, mine stood up on its end real tall, and then everyone else is gathered all around, and they bowed down and worshiped. Isn't that crazy? They all worshiped my stack of grain. Isn't that wild? Elbow, wink, wink, right? Now, his brothers absolutely hated him because of this. I'm talking like Malfoy from Harry Potter hate, right? Maybe that's not you. It's like Ryan from The Office hate, or maybe the way Michael hates Toby. It's that kind of hate, like, no, 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 please, God, no, kind of hate, right? This hate is palpable in the story. We're told it multiple times. This doesn't go well, right? It never goes well when you tell your older brothers, hey, you know what? I think, I think you're going to worship me, right? I think you're going to worship me. You really need to know about this. This is even too much for his father, Jacob. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Jacob tells him about the second dream, about the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him, and we're told this in verse 10. When he was told to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? See, Jacob even realizes some of the significance of this dream. It's pretty easy to read into what may be going on here in the mind of Joseph. Like, what are these dreams actually for? They will have prophetic influence. 
these would show some of the plan that God has for Joseph. And they would partially come true in the life of Jacob. Near the end of the story of Joseph, there would be a moment where God has used Joseph to a point of being raised to a position of power, second only to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt at the time, and his brothers and his father would come to him in a posture of humility, needing grain to even survive. And God's people would be saved through this life of Joseph. Joseph is going to be exalted, but we need to be reminded as well. What comes next in the story is Joseph's humility. God is going to humble him. He is going to humble this arrogant young man. He is going to take his pride from him. And it is only through incredible suffering and loss that he is exalted to this place of authority eventually. See, even with his brothers asking the question, if he's going to be king over them, it's only partially right. Yes, he'll have great power and influence, but when the final blessing of Jacob comes, it's not going to be Joseph that carries the true blessing of God. Joseph will be given greatness and power and success. Even dreams, the ability to interpret those dreams before the king of Egypt. But the blessing will go and come through not Joseph, but through Judah. The last person we would expect here. And we're told how this scene ends in verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. See, this morning we could let ourselves be blinded by jealousy of of others in our lives. The success and power and wealth and things like that that we kind of value in the world and say, why don't I, why don't I, why can't I? But I think we're called to walk in the example of Jacob. We're to ponder these things. We're to kind of hide them in our hearts. The same phrase would be used in the New Testament to be applied to Mary. That when she's told the vision of the coming king that's going to be coming through her, she hides these things in her heart. She ponders on them. She keeps these things and keeps them on her mind. This is what we're invited to do this morning. In this story of Joseph, to be reminded of what true blessing is. Real blessing is a life receiving the love of God and being content with having nothing but him. See, because of this story, There is good news for us today. See, long after the life of Joseph, the life of Jacob, there would be an unwed teenage mother who would give birth to a son who would be named Jesus in an obscure, small place that no one expected. And then many years later, writers would come along And they would tell stories of this Jesus, and they would take painstaking detail to trace the the lineage of Jesus all the way back to the king who is David. The king prophesied, come. And not only to David, but all the way back to Judah, Jacob's seething brother here, who hates him. Judah would be the one through whom this promise of a coming king would come. And this king wouldn't come with might with an entourage like Esau, with all the power and all the strappings of what we we might chalk up with greatness, this king would come in obscurity and humility and dependence like Jacob. See, Jesus would become to be known as the Son of God. 
God's only begotten Son, the one in whom God the Father would speak. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus didn't come with a robe of many colors. He came clothed in perfect righteousness. God the Father loved his Son more than anything. But when Jesus came to his own, like Joseph and his brothers, to tell of what was going to come, Jesus comes and says the, tells the gospel, and how was he received? He was hated. He was rejected. He even said of himself that a prophet is, is without honor in his hometown. Even the robe that Jesus would be clothed in before his resurrection was put on him to mock him by the Romans. To mock him as the weak, pathetic king of the Jews that they thought that he was. And guess what, church? When there was a bad report about you and I that needed to be told to the Father that we were sinful, that we were arrogant, that we were prideful, that we hated his son, that we crucified him. Do you know what Jesus did? Instead of telling on us, he took the blame for us. This is what he did for us on the cross. He took our sin and our punishment upon himself, and he died the death that we deserved. And he rose to new life so we could have it abundantly. It is at the cross that Jesus shows that he is the real blessing. He is the exalted son, and that he is the true promised king. As Jesus walked the earth, we see his rule of all things. As the sun, moon, and stars would come and bow before him, so does all of creation willingly submit to his will. He walked on the water. He brought the dead to life. He multiplied matter, defying the laws of physics, which he instituted at the speaking of all of creation. He is the true king of all of the world. Everywhere he goes, blessing and flourishing follow. Maybe you're here today, and you need to be reminded that the coming of Jesus really is good news. That his exaltation in our lives and our humility is really good news for us. Maybe you're feeling like things are out of control in your life. Now, you need to know that your King Jesus brings peace. You need to know, if you feel attacked by the enemy in your life, that when Jesus comes... Man, Satan and his enemies that come against you, they tuck their tails and run. That's what they do. Under Jesus' rule, we will always have enough because we will always have him. He says over and over in the scriptures to us, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You're never going to be alone or forgotten. And we can say like the psalmist, who am I? Whom have I in heaven but you? Who on, what on earth should I desire? But you have you, Jesus. I don't need anything else. Maybe you come in here worried about the state of the world. There's presidents and wars and dictators and kings. And all these things are going to come and they're going to go. But Philippians 2 tells us there's going to be a day that every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess. And it's not going to be any other king, any other dictator, any other ruler than King Jesus. Cling to that hope. See, when we believe this good news of the gospel and live in that blessing of receiving the love of God and allowing it to content our own souls with Jesus, you know what happens to us? It's, we start actually believing that everyone else should get in on this. Unlike Joseph, the love that he received from his father, the love that we receive in Christ, 
What it does to us is it shapes our heart to want to share that love with others, to soften our hearts for those that are far from Jesus. We come, if you will, to our brothers and our sisters, and we don't parade the status that God has given to us in saving us. We say, no, you need to hear the love of your Father for you. You need to hear what Jesus has done for you. You should have hearts that swell with absolute love and compassion for others. Real love, true love from God will produce humility and patience and love and grace in you. See, as I study that, that list of all those names in chapter 36, in, in a planning meeting with Pastor Josh and Ryan, um, we were talking about all of this, and I started realizing we're given this entire list of names here for another reason. Not just to show all the might of Esau, but to show us. We have it recorded in the scriptures that God has not given up on the nations. He's not just selected his holy huddle and his holy few. We here in this church following Jesus are not just the true church. No, God has many that have not yet submitted to his rule and his reign and his kindness and his mercy. And it is, you know whose job it is to go proclaim that good news? It's us with hearts full of grace and mercy and truth. God has not given up on his world. We are to advance the gospel with hearts full of grace and mercy. See, the amazing thing about the gospel is it comes into any culture, any people group, any tribe, any context, and the gospel never changes. But the way it's heard does. Maybe to some, it's an offering of freedom from guilt. Maybe to others, it's this offering of full acceptance just the way you are, God loves you just like that and wants to pour out his love on you through the person and work of Jesus. See, no matter how the gospel needs to be said, it is, a, it is our job as followers of Jesus, being contented by God, fully assured of his love for us, that we go and advance and tell that good news to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors. Let me pray that we would. Lord Jesus, you are good. And I pray that this morning uh, we would be reminded again um, of your goodness, that your kindness would again um, just fill us with hearts of compassion uh, for our neighbors, God, even for ourselves this morning. Um, God, I pray that if we are here this morning and we feel guilt or shame uh, for even feeling a certain way, maybe it's this morning um, that we, we don't feel your love the way that we desire to feel it, the way that we want to feel it. God, I pray um, we would be patient even with our own selves in that process of sanctification and where you have us in this journey um, towards seeing you, seeing your presence fill this world, fill our own hearts um, with your glory. God, I pray that this morning, um, as we move now to response, that we would respond with hearts that are contented in you and are full to the brim uh, with the love that you poured out for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.